KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We start another election week here in Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for uh, joining us out there on this rainy day, uh, certainly in metro Atlanta and I think in much of the state uh, today. Um, we've got a dream panel on the show today to talk about how this runoff has played off in uh, has played out in the last few weeks, uh, what our panelists are expecting uh, in the day ahead. Um, but let me just start by uh, making a couple of points uh, and, and then open the floor for them to uh, do as much talking as possible. Uh, number one, uh, Warnock today is going to focus most of, most of his time right in Atlanta, uh, uh, where he uh, certainly hopes and thinks he can get a preponderance of the votes. He's going to be doing a rally with uh, union leaders. Uh, he's going to be talking, I think, to Georgia Tech students at some point. He's doing an event with Killer Mike. While uh, Herschel Walker is heading up first, he's going to be up in the North Georgia mountains and then in outlying uh, metro Atlanta suburbs where he thinks he might have some strength. Uh, we do know that um, already in the past week or so, uh, 1.8 million Georgians have cast ballots early. Uh, the Secretary of State's office says that's something like 26 percent of all the active voters in the state who have cast their ballots. And there's some, although it's reading tea leaves to some extent, uh, we can make some conclusions about what that early vote tells us about where things stand before the final day of voting tomorrow. And finally, the amount of money that continues to pour into Georgia has been staggering. Since um, I think it's October 20th, from October 20th through November 16th, when we saw the beginning of the runoff race, the Warnock campaign has brought in $52 million. The Walker campaign has brought in $21 million. And just in this, the final week, uh, the campaigns are spending something like $30 million uh, in advertising on various platforms, of course, television being the most expensive uh, uh, medium on which they're advertising. So that said, let's get right to the panel and begin our conversation. I'm really pleased that Patricia Murphy, a political reporter and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us today. Patricia writes the Political Insider column for the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays and, of course, oversees the jolt, which is at AJC.com, which you can uh, get to every day to find out all that's happening across the state in politics. And Patricia, I mentioned that the Walker folks are going to be up in the mountains or North Georgia for a part of the day. That's where you are right now, getting set to cover him, right? Yes, I am heading up to Dawsonville. He'll also be in Ellijay. He's doing kind of a, a swath of those North Georgia counties where he really needs to run up his numbers um, against Raphael Warnock. Then he'll be in Kennesaw for a final rally tonight. 
Well, thank you so much on a busy day for uh, being with us. Stay dry out there, please. <laughs> Charles Bullock is back uh, with us as well, University of Georgia political science professor. And I always, as you know, Chuck, I always think of you as the dean of political science professors. More than five, what, six decades cover uh, uh, teaching politics, observing politics, writing about politics in Georgia. Thanks for joining us today, Chuck. Thank you. It's good to be with you in my old age here. <laughs> well, you are still the man we love to listen to as election days approach. Um, and uh, two of two of our, our favorites from Emory University, Professor Andre Gillespie, uh, professor of political science and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. And Andre, we should give you a quick plug. As usual, you'll be at 11 Live tomorrow night, uh, helping them with their election coverage, right? Yes, so please tune in there or at my Atlanta 13. Thank you for joining us today. And we're so happy to have back Bernard Fraga, who, of course, teaches political science at Emory University as well. Um, Bernard, a little bit later, I don't want to do it now, but you were uh, quoted in an article in Time magazine about the origins of the runoff system in Georgia. And I think this is truly a day later in the show to look at whether it is really time to put this to rest. Not that it's going to happen anytime soon, Bernard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I've been getting a lot of questions about how the runoff works and learning a lot about Southern politics and Georgia politics in particular, which means reading a lot of Professor Bullock's work. So um, I'm, it's an honor to be on the panel here with um, such esteemed and such fantastic colleagues. Thank you. Uh, all right, let's get right to it. And Patricia, what I want to do, and I'll start with you, is just go around and let each of you give me your thoughts about what you've observed as this runoff has unfolded, what you're looking for today and tomorrow as uh, the vote final day of voting gets underway. So I'll start with you and we'll go around and uh, and let you each take some time to give us your observations. So the biggest thing that I've noticed during this runoff period is what feels like a real change of momentum. It really felt like Herschel Walker had the momentum going into election day. He had a really strong debate performance. I feel like he um, used that to really catapult himself uh, into uh, the minds of some Georgia voters that, oh, maybe this is a person who I really could get behind. Um, since Election Day, however, when he came up short, we've seen just a real difference in pace and tone from um, between the two campaigns. Uh, Herschel Walker has really slowed down immensely on the campaign trail. He had five days over Thanksgiving where he did nothing. Um, even this weekend, he had uh, one public event and one event where he was shaking hands at the SEC championship. Raphael Warnock had six public events and uh, gave the Sunday sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And I think that really sums up the entire runoff for both of these campaigns. Warnock running on a very heavily focused message, looking at um, his own message is uniting Georgians, using uh, sort of biblical themes, leaning on his role as a reverend, um, talking about uh, issues that they believe will unite Georgians, get those crossover voters. Herschel Walker, on the other hand, I think has really relied on his celebrity, on his appeal to a very kind of narrow swath of Georgia voters, conservatives, dedicated football fans. 
Um, he's really stayed closed off from the press. He gave a single interview to Politico recently where he just made another gaffe saying that he thought that the House will be even instead of the Senate will be even. So it's just been a very different feel for the, these uh, four weeks of the runoff compared to the four weeks ahead of Election Day. Um, obviously, anything can happen because it's Georgia, but that's been my observation on the ground. Thank you for that. Chuck Bullock, as Bernard Fraga says, you wrote the book on runoff elections in Georgia. You've observed them more closely than uh, almost anyone else. So give us your initial thoughts on what you think has happened in the past few weeks. Yeah, uh, I think perhaps uh, the people who voted for Herschel Warnock, excuse me, for Raphael, let me give <laughs> people who voted for <laughs> Herschel Walker, uh, back in November have less incentive to do so. And that's because the Senate's not up for grabs. And also, he's not going to have the coattails that Brian Kemp provided him. Now, Kemp has been out on the trail with him to the extent, again, and Richard points out, he's not on the trail much, but they have appeared together. And Kemp has cut an ad for him. But these are two missing elements, I think, that would have been essential for him to be able to, to win in this next round. And they're, neither one of them are there. So I think he has a much steeper hill to climb. Not that it's easy going to necessarily be easy for, uh, for Raphael Warnock, but it does look like that Warnock is probably pulling ahead at this point. Andre? So, so while this race statistically is too close to call, um, and so I won't make public predictions, uh, you know, about who's going to win or who's going to lose because Georgia is still Georgia. Republicans still have a slight numerical advantage in the state and, and anything could happen. Um, it, from my vantage point, the Warnock campaign um, has a lot to be excited about based on what the early vote numbers look like. So in particular, that um, elevated proportion of black voters in the electorate is good. Um, it just can't crater tomorrow. So if no black people show up tomorrow, all bets are off on this one. Um, I still see a lot of room for improvement in terms of turnout um, amongst Asian American and Latino voters. Um, and so, you know, from just looking at the numbers overall to even looking at places where we would expect to see high Asian American and Latino voter turnout, like in the seventh congressional district. So there's still a lot of work to be done. I, you know, don't think it's over yet for any candidate, but I do, uh, you know, I don't disagree with Patricia, for instance, about sort of where the momentum is, is heading. Bernard. Yes, I mean, I agree with my colleagues. The momentum right now looks to be favoring uh, Senator Warnock. And I think, you know, what's interesting has been the narratives about voter turnout. You know, we've seen long lines in many areas of Metro Atlanta for early in-person voting. And, you know, the Secretary of State's office has talked about how many Georgians have already voted. But right now, um, based on data through the weekend, although there was no early voting this weekend, of course, just mail and ballots being counted, you know, we're at about 70 percent um, of where we were, uh, you know, at this point before the November general election. So turnout, you know, is down overall that just like in 2020 and 2021 could be made up for by higher election day turnout. But importantly, it's down more in heavily white precincts in heavily white counties and just looking within Fulton in the precincts in Buckhead and other areas that are more heavily Republican. That's where the early vote is lagging the most. Um, so I think, again, all of these signs point towards not only kind of the public perception of momentum for Senator Warnock, but also the reality on the ground, the early vote reflecting less enthusiasm among, again, likely Republican voters. 
Patricia, I want to pick up on something uh, that Chuck Bullock talked about, and that was Brian Kemp. Uh, the governor, of course, has endorsed Herschel Walker after keeping his distance from him during the uh, general election. Um, has held an event, has a direct-to-camera commercial endorsing him. Um, and, and, and yet, um, as Chuck points out, uh, Brian Kemp's no longer on the ballot. He won his election and, and, and is now an observer. And um, we know that um, in the general election, the power of his vote had a lot of impact on down-ballot uh, Republicans in the statewide races. It didn't work for Herschel back then. He, he, as we've talked about in this show many times, 200,000 fewer votes than uh, Brian Kemp. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on the significance of the Kemp endorsement um, and, and whether you agree with Chuck Bullock that it, it's not necessarily going to turn out a lot of voters. Yeah, so um, even ahead of election day, of the general election, Brian Kemp said he was going to vote for Herschel Walker, and he even offered to campaign with Herschel Walker, but the Walker team turned him down. Um, so mm -hmm. it was a case of, I don't think that Republicans didn't know that Brian Kemp was supporting him, um, but he certainly has done more in the in the runoff to boost him. And the Walker campaign has been open to that this time around in a way that they weren't the last time around. Um, but I agree. I don't know how transferable that popularity is going to be because it was not transferable 100 percent on Election Day. And that's the reason that uh, there is a runoff. That's the reason that uh, there were 200 fewer thousand Republicans who voted for Kemp and didn't vote for Walker because they don't see them as the same candidate. And they did know that, of course, they're both Republicans, um, that Kemp uh, would vote for Herschel Walker. Uh, but this time around, um, I think they're leaving it up to Kemp to make the arguments that uh, Walker could have and should have been making this whole time, economic arguments, let me have a partner in Washington. Um, I just don't know that it's going to be enough. So, Bernard, um, we, we can, you could parse what happened to Walker um, underperforming uh, Kemp in a number of ways, I think. I mean, on what, there's some people who would suggest that Raphael Warnock came so close to 50% plus one uh, that there were factors that just kept him from getting over the finish line, the turnout of black voters being one reason. But, but let's look at it from the other uh, point of view, and that is that given the strength of that Republican statewide ticket, um, the fact that uh, uh, Walker did so poorly compared to the rest of the people on that ticket shows you why he's up in the North Georgia mountains today, where he significantly underperformed uh, Brian Kemp and others on the Republican side of the statewide ballot. Well, you know, I mean, I don't want to second guess the strategy that, um, you know, Walker's taken in this campaign more broadly. I think we'll see tomorrow night or early the next morning um, whether, you know, um, it works or not. But I will say that in the general, um, a lot of the cause of that underperformance, again, was not people not voting or the core supporters not turning out. In November, Walker did a lot worse because of those swing voters, because people voted for Kemp and voted for Warnock. And it doesn't seem like he's done a lot of work to try and win over those voters. Of course, he has the endorsement of Brian Kemp, but that's voters in Buckhead. That's voters in Metro Atlanta the Republicans that are left anyway, those are the ones that I think that, you know, he's most, most concerned about. And the turnout data bears that out. That's where there's weakness in the early vote, you know. And so on Election Day, yes, you can make some of that up. But I, it's just 
it seems like a kind of scattershot approach. It's not clear that he knows what he needs to do. And uh, again, given turnout, he's starting behind. He's starting at a deficit and massive election day turnout could be important, but I don't know that it'll be enough. You know, Andra, let me throw something out and then let you and Chuck weigh in on this uh, about where Walker stands right now. Uh, during the course of the general election, um, a lot of us who were observing the way the campaigns, the Senate campaigns were playing out, talked about the fact that there was a turning point in the Walker campaign. He brought in a new team of highly skilled professional political consultants who in many ways tried to get him back on track, did in fact help him uh, uh, present himself in a way that for at least some people was much more appealing as a candidate. And now we're talking about, gee, what happened in this runoff that he's had this strategy of not being as present on the campaign trail. Bernard thinks they've had sort of a scattershot approach. I I'm just interested in that, but please weigh in in any way you want to on that. So I think Bernard is being very generous by calling it scattershot. And I think what this underscores is that the candidate matters and candidate quality matters. And so you could have the best consultants in the field, but the candidate does not want to listen um, to their advisors and they go and they do it their own way, even against the best advice. There isn't anything that you can do with that. And then, I mean, I think there's also um, just the part of it that Herschel Walker had serious weaknesses as a candidate, aside from the fact that he's a novice, right? If he's a novice who's unteachable, that's even worse. But the fact that he's a novice candidate who made lots of gas and has lots of personal baggage. Like we coming into this contest a year ago, we knew Herschel Walker had a lot of personal baggage. And it turns out we know a lot more now about that personal baggage than we did before because there's new stuff that's come out. There are lots of ways that he was compromised as a candidate. Um, and so I don't think it was a mistake that Mitch McConnell hedged his bets and was like, you know, we're probably not gonna do as well as as, as, as some of the models would have predicted because the individual candidates weren't uh, as good as they could have been. And I think Herschel Walker was, you know, certainly in that group of weak Senate candidates across the country. Chuck? Yeah, it's, it's been said that, that Herschel has more skeletons than he has closets to hide them in. And I think what's happened is that uh, it's been recognized by his team probably that he's not going to be able to reach much beyond his base. So this is a base mobilization only kind of campaign. So sure, he's up there in the North Georgia mountains. Those counties are going to vote at least 80% Republican. Some of them will approach 90% Republican, get over to Banks County, for example. So yeah, it's going to be a try effort to turn these folks out. Well, Warnock, uh, yeah, sure, he's going to want to mobilize his base, but he's also, I think, hoping to appeal to Republicans who were conflicted back during the general election had their concerns about Walker, but were willing to accept those if it meant that Republicans could win and control the Senate. And now that that's off the table, you know, maybe these people simply don't vote at all, but it may be that Warnock is hoping that some of these people will show up and vote. So I think that's why we're seeing this very different kind of approach that's being taken here in the closing days. Patricia? Yeah, I completely agree with Dr. Bullock and a couple of other observations. You know, Kemp and uh, uh, Walker ran totally different campaigns from the beginning. Um, Kemp was a purely economic message with a little bit of public safety, um, obviously not at all close to Donald Trump. On the other side of that, Herschel Walker um, leaned very heavily on social issues, especially on transgender uh, athletes and kids' sports, um, obviously remained extremely close to Donald Trump. It's just a 
narrower group of voters that that appeals to. And I think that that's been a problem. And it doesn't matter what Brian Kemp says about Herschel Walker, because it's not going to change any of those underlying fundamentals. And then I think since a lot since he did get a new team in, a lot has happened since then. We've heard the accusations of him paying for abortions for women, um, which he has denied. We've heard more accusations of abuse from different women. Even since the general election, we've heard him. He's gotten a lot looser on the stump in some cases. That's when he's been talking about werewolves versus vampires and all of these. Um, they're not gaffes. I mean, he's saying it on purpose. Um, but it's just not landing and it's not playing well on a camera that records information and then plays it back for people. So he was very, very controlled and disciplined immediately following the new team coming on. It was just a very tight stump mm-hmm. speech again and again and again. Since the election, it seems like he's had, um, in some cases, more energy on the stump, a little looser, more freewheeling, more confident and saying things that you just can't take back. So, um, uh, Andra, the, uh, there are two different headlines I want to direct everybody on the panel to uh, in the papers today. Uh, one uh, is a Politico uh, story on their homepage, which essentially, uh, and I won't read the headline directly because I don't have it up on my screen this moment, but it essentially says the momentum has shifted. Republicans are worried, as we've all been saying, that the Republican Republicans feel like they're, you know, really not in a great position right now. The momentum has shifted. But there's also a piece in The Washington Post that Aaron Blake has written saying Herschel Walker is a very flawed flawed candidate. Could he still win? And of course, the answer to that question is yes, he could. Because if you go back just to the general election voting on Election Day, Walker outperformed Warnock among Election Day voters by more than 200,000 Votes, So it shows us that that's why you're very cautious about wanting to make any predictions about what the early voting tells us. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think we still have to be there. And I think that there has been a lot of Republican socialization in the last couple of years to only vote on Election Day. I think ultimately, if Walker loses, uh, Georgia Republicans may revisit that strategy and we may go back to the days when uh, Republicans endorsed early voting. Uh, so like when it's first instituted, you could see people like Herman Cain and Johnny Isaacson who are like, this is great. Go do it. Right. And I think you know, Georgia Republicans have kind of gotten away from that ethos. And so what we don't know is if people voted because they already made up their minds and it was convenient for them to wait on a day of their choosing for an hour and a half, as opposed to chancing having to do it on election day when the schedule's tighter and you can only go to one place. So, I mean, I think that that's the big question about tomorrow is whether or not we've basically seen people just register their choices early because their minds hadn't changed from November and just seeing what the attrition looks like. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a very risky strategy when you can see or infer based on the demographics of the people who showed up early that uh, re- Democrats are not going to give this up without a fight and that they have like laid everything out on the field in order to make sure that they banked as many votes as possible. And then we'll probably double that up with uh, a strong like drag and pull effort uh, tomorrow as well. So. Uh, you know, I think we're going to be coming back and, and, and talking about the efficacies of the two divergent strategies between the two parties. But I, I will say that in terms of at least the stuff that I have gotten, have gotten, both parties have like, you know, done an effort to try to reach out to as many voters as possible. And for the health of democracy, I think that that's a good thing. And so, you know, both sides have, have, have really done, you know, a better job of mobilizing, I would argue, in the runoff than they did during the general election. Chuck? Now, let me take a little bit different angle on this, and this would be kind of what 
what the Warner people may look at and say, hey, we, we still have a chance here. Yeah, we, we're not going to you know, <laughs> get off the field yet. And that would be that, yeah, the the leader in any kind of election that goes to a runoff has about a 70% chance of winning. But if you're an incumbent and you're pushed into a runoff, your odds aren't as good that overall it drops down to about 55%. But if you're a U.S. senator who is forced into a runoff, then you're more likely to lose than not. And again, we're getting pretty small numbers of cases here. And then if we boil it down and look at Georgia and general election runoffs, we've had four senators, incumbent senators, who have been involved in this. And Saxby Chambliss in 2008 is the only one who has been able to win this. So, you know, if, if the Walker people who I know are steeped in history, no doubt, are looking at it from that perspective, then they can say, hey, uh, we, we probably got this. Don't worry about it. So, uh, Chuck, how, l- let me go back even further just for a moment, as long as you brought up 2008 and Saxby Chambliss. Um, you can go back to 1992 when there was a runoff between Weich Fowler, of course, and Paul Coverdale, Weich Fowler being the incumbent. And uh, Coverdale won as the Republican uh, that runoff, even though the president-elect, who had won Georgia in that general election, Bill Clinton came to uh, did a huge rally for uh, Fowler in Macon. So how does Republicans typically have outperformed Democrats in most runoffs, uh, runoff elections, Chuck? And why is that? Well, yeah, up until uh, January of 2021, Republicans had won every right. one of these. Again, we're talking about, you know, <laughs> just a handful of them. But, you know, the, the pattern has been that Republicans were much more adept at getting their voters to come back, you know. Uh, Professor Frager here is the the world's national expert on on turnout, but uh, yeah, it was always just a turnout game up until that point. Uh, and and one could argue, I think, even that in uh, 2021, it maybe wasn't that Democrats did the exceptional job of turning out. It was that a number of Republican voters actually believed Donald Trump when he said, "You can't trust the American Georgia electoral system," and therefore they did not turn out. So it may have been almost kind of in some sense maybe a winning by default there in 2021 if Republicans didn't compete at the same level as Democrats were. Uh, Bernard, before we have to take a break, let me give you a last word on this. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really interesting when you start digging into the data of exactly where you're seeing kind of lagging. Again, this is not total vote. This is just the early vote, apples, an attempt at an apples-to-apples comparison. Even within Buckhead, within Fulton County, the precincts that were more evenly divided, places where you might imagine there was a little bit of this kind of Kemp, um, you know, Warnock, a little bit of weakness for Walker already, that's where the turnout is down a lot, um, too, relative. I mean, in some precincts in, uh, up in Buckhead, you're seeing only half the early vote that you saw uh, in, the, in the November election. Mm-hmm. So, again, I really think there's a lot of signs here, um, signs of trouble, and it, I'm not sure what we could do about it or what he could do about it, Walker, that is. All right, let's get to our first break of the show. When we come back, Patricia, I want to start with a column you wrote uh, last week. Uh, Basically, you said uh, when it comes to Donald Trump and Herschel Walker, whether Trump came to Georgia or not, the damage was already done. And there's new damage from Donald Trump. And I want to ask the panel whether uh, they think any of the things that Trump has been doing lately will weigh in into voters' decisions tomorrow. We'll do that and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind, the day before the final day of voting in the runoff election for the U.S. Senate and the final day of voting in the midterm elections anywhere in the United States uh, tomorrow in the state of uh, Georgia. We're joined by Bernard Fraga, Andre Gillespie, Chuck Bullock, and Patricia Murphy. As I said at the start of the show, truly a dream panel on this day before the election. Uh, Patricia, Donald Trump did not come to Georgia to uh, campaign for Herschel Walker during the runoff period. The Walker campaign obviously did not want him here. Um, but you know, he is clearly the anointed candidate of Donald Trump. Um, and Donald Trump, in his announcement speech that he was going to run again for president, specifically said, turn out and vote for uh, uh, Herschel. Now we've got new controversies. The Trump dinner with Nick Fuentes and Ye, Kanye West, and then even more recently, his essentially saying that the United States Constitution, when it comes to election matters, uh, should basically be thrown out because uh, the 20, he's still saying the 2020 election was fraudulent. Okay, how does that enter people's minds as they early voted or will vote tomorrow? What's your sense of that? So I think that you know, the news that we've just heard about Donald Trump is not going to really fundamentally alter people's opinions about Donald Trump. It's just more of the same. I think it compounds people's. If they already are uh, really frustrated and offended by Donald Trump, it compounds that. There's nothing that he said recently that is worse than his, you know, what he said and did on January 6th. Uh, than what he said and did in Charlottesville. I, I think it is just more part of that theme. It does remind voters that Donald Trump is out there. This is why Republicans did not want Trump to announce for president before Herschel Walker's runoff came and went, and he could do this on his own. Um, but the point of my column was um, was to say, you know, a lot has been made that, oh, Trump is not coming for Herschel Walker. It really doesn't matter if he comes for Herschel Walker or not, because um, he got Herschel Walker into this race. He has known Herschel Walker for nearly 40 years. Uh, they talk about their friendship quite a bit. Um, when Herschel Walker spoke for Donald Trump um, at the GOP convention, he said, I just pray I can be the kind of leader like Donald Trump. I mean, this is a Trump candidate. This is a Trump, this is a, a, a creation of Trump world. And so of all of the surrogates who have come in for Herschel Walker, the point of my column is that there is a, a fundamental level of dishonesty not to bring in Hersh- Donald Trump because I'm sure he would have quite a bit of sway on uh, Herschel Walker's understanding of politics, on what he would do, how he would vote, who he would be an ally with. So you may as well just bring him in and discuss that openly. But I understand why his um, obviously why his handlers don't want that to happen because it would not be helpful. Andra. So. I think that the damage that Trump did was in uh, in recruiting Herschel Walker to run in this uh, race. So that was the damage that ultimately was done. And I think everything else kind of since then has pretty much been noise after that. So, yeah, um, I I think I've said this before on this show. I think 
Donald Trump was at least neutral when he endorsed Herschel Walker and didn't say something that would undermine voter turnout by saying, like, your votes don't count. And I think, you know, the uh, whatever you call a tweet on Truth Social this weekend about upending the Constitution to reinstate him as president two years in, I think is noise and reflects on him. It doesn't reflect on Herschel Walker in the same way. And I think that's largely because people have made up their minds already. So there really wasn't anything that you could say at this point that was really going to change anybody's mind at this point. I think that's even true for the people who were wavering and who were conflicted about whether or not to support Walker. They've probably made their minds up already about what they're going to do. You know, Bernard and then Chuck, it does, what Andres says strikes me as really being important here. Uh, given how the general election turned out with, again, the statewide Republican candidates winning all of the offices, had a Gary Black the very popular at the time agriculture commissioner, been the nominee for the Republican Party, we've got to speculate, I think, with some basis in fact, that he, it is likely he, like the rest of the ticket, might very well have uh, won enough votes to uh, have forestalled a runoff. You know, I think, I think that's true. We can speculate about it, right? I'm just reminded um, of Jeff Duncan on, I think it was CNN, um, you know, saying he waited in line for an hour to vote early, got into the polling place, and then couldn't pull the trigger for either candidate. Couldn't do it. And yeah. I think that's the people who are being impacted the most by things like Trump saying we should, you know, suspend the Constitution in order to reinstate him as president. It's people who are, again, you know, they're not making up their minds. Really, they're saying, are, are they really going to support the party, the Republican Party, by voting for a candidate that they know is problematic, that is linked to a problematic leader of the party in Donald Trump? Um, I, you know, it's just it, imagining the counterfactual really, I think, is making a lot of Republicans heads hurt even before seeing the final results tomorrow. Chuck, let me add a layer to this and then please weigh in. Um, of course, President Biden has not been invited by Raphael Warnock to be down here uh, either. And, of course, the Walker campaign, uh, in everything they've done, has been about trying to tie Raphael Warnock to President Biden in their advertising, in the way that Herschel Walker talks about that on the stump. It's all about tying the two uh, together. Um, and it appears in anecdotal interviews with people that there are not a lot of Republicans out there who who are at least to some extent uh, concerned about Raphael Warnock's relationship with the president, that he'd be a rubber stamp for the president. He hasn't been, but the Walker campaign has tried to make that point. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to address several things which my colleagues here have mentioned. One is that if any one of the five of us, some kind of miraculous action had ended up on the Republican ballot uh, back in November for the Senate, we currently would be senators-elect. I mean, what Republicans did is they nominated the one person who could not win this office, potentially. Maybe he still does, but uh, they certainly made it a lot harder on themselves. Uh, one of the problems that Raphael Warnock has, yeah, is the unpopularity of Joe Biden, who is about 20 percentage points upside down. That is, his disapproval rating is around mid-50s, and his approval rating is somewhere in the mid-30s. regard to this pulling the trigger that, uh, that Lieutenant Governor Duncan talked about, uh, he's, he's a very serious uh, individual who's willing to step out against his party and against uh, what would be the very popular thing to do. I have to wonder if indeed that... Uh, 
tweet that uh, the president put out about overriding the Constitution, putting all things aside, I wonder if that might have been, been a sufficient thing for him to say, oh, yeah, okay, this is, this is enough. So, yeah, this latest information that comes out, is it going to create some kind of tsunami in favor of Raphael Warnock? No, it isn't. But uh, these kinds of bits of information that are coming out may be sufficient to get some individuals, some conflicted Republicans who are saying, like Jeff Duncan, I really can't resolve this one way or the other. Some share of them may say, this is finally the straw that breaks the camel's back. And yeah, I guess I can't actually vote for Raphael Warnock, even though it goes against my party, but it's for the good of the country. Andra, last word before the break. I mean, I think that that conflict was already settled when control of the Senate had already been decided. I mean, I think that uh, what Jeff Duncan did, and I take him very seriously, was he showed up to vote knowing he wasn't going to vote for anybody because he didn't, as a sitting lieutenant governor, want to be seen as not having participated in an election. And so at least, you know, he's marked off at the rolls as having shown up to vote and telling you that he didn't vote for anybody. I do find it hard to believe that he went in undecided and then was just like, oh, I can't do that. Like, I think that that was more of a rhetorical flourish um, and that he did it in order to be able to make a point and to be able to say that he did show up to vote on Election Day. And the thing that's going to be interesting, and we're not going to capture this in the surveys at this point, is that those people who have that kind of conflict, they're doing as Bernard has said. They're just not showing up to vote. And that's where we're going to see evidence of that internal conflict. And we're seeing that already. And we saw that before. Uh, you know, Donald Trump sent out that 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 missive on social media. All right, let's uh, get to our final break of the show and come back. Uh, we can finish up on the Senate race, but but I also want to talk about runoff elections in general. And I'd love to hear the panel's thoughts about the Democratic National Committee, which is on the verge of pushing Georgia way up on the primary calendar in 2024. We'll do those things and more after these messages. Patricia Murphy, I just want to make one quick observation uh, before we move on. And and if I were doing this on a social media post, I'd be pasting a big, yellow, happy, smiley face uh, next to it. With all of the talk ever since Donald Trump began uh, spreading lies about a rigged election in 2020, with all of the polls showing that people are worried about our democracy and questions about whether it will survive, the fact that we have seen such enthusiasm by Georgians to get out in the polls and cast ballots strikes me in my kind of Pollyannish way as a sign that people do believe that the fundamental institutions of democracy still work. Voting is the bedrock of all of that. Um, yes, I completely agree with that. I'm going You're to... You're muted, I think, Patricia. Oh. We don't hear you. Can there... you hear me? Oh, I don't hear, uh, Patricia. Oh, okay. um, well, I will say while we figure out what's going on with Bill's audio, um, that I think that we... Uh, I agree. I think that people are enthusiastic. They want to vote in this election. Um, However, I'm going to rain on the parade of that concept a little bit by saying the long lines that we saw during early voting um, really reveal a fundamental problem with SB 202 in that it compressed the number of early voting days from 17 to 5 without also making an accommodation of how to 
um, accommodate all of those voters. It also made it much just harder to do a mail-in ballot, and you cannot drop off an, um, a mail-in absentee ballot in a drop box um, as easily as you could have before. So I think it's I, – I see a lot of enthusiasm in these lines, but I also see a lot of lines in these lines. I've talked to a lot of people who left the lines because they just didn't have two hours on a Tuesday to cast their ballot. And so I think uh, the legislature is going to be under some pressure to go back in and deal with uh, what we've been saying. I, I think I am glad you made those points. I don't even be, I dis, I don't disagree with any of that. I'm still buoyed by the fact that whatever SB 202 has done to make it harder to vote, people wanted to go out and cast ballot. So I'll take I'll take half a glass full <laughs> today if you don't buy. Let's talk about runoff elections in general. Chuck Bullock and Bernard Fraga, I want to start with you two on this. Um, the there is a lot of talk lately that the, these runoff elections, which Georgia and only other, one other state, I think Louisiana, continue to have. Um, first of all, they cost taxpayers a lot of money. I think it's a ten million plus dollar. Uh, election that we're undergoing uh, uh, this week, um, and and they also uh, extend an election period that wears voters out, and um, and so there have been questions lately. Should we finally eliminate the runoff? It's not going to happen anytime soon. There's been talk about ranked choice voting. Maybe there'll be some momentum around that. But Chuck, I think you and Bernard really uh, both understand the history of the runoff election here. This was started in the early 60s, essentially as a way to keep black candidates from winning elections. Chuck? Yeah, I think that uh, I like the idea of having to get a majority. I think that's a good idea. So in essence, I like the majority vote requirement. Uh, you mentioned cost being one of the potential problems. The other potential problem is the drop-off participation between the two. Mm-hmm. And we have seen one general election runoff, and this was just the Public Service Commission, where the drop-off in participation was about 90%. So very few people thought that was worthwhile to show up for. Uh, the best we did was uh, in 2021, we had a drop-off of about 10%. As we went from November 2020 to January of 2021. For the two Senate runoffs before that, that 1992 one with White Fowler you mentioned, and then the 2008 with Saxby Chambliss, drop-off was more than 40%. Now, if we did rank choice voting, then you have essentially the same pool of voters because what you're doing is you're going through and reallocating ballots. Now, this ranked choice indicates you rank your preferences. And if you voted, say, in this last case for the libertarian who did not really do well, then uh, election officials would look to see, okay, for those people who voted for the libertarian, who was their second choice? And let's allocate those ballots. And at that point, the election would be over and someone would have gotten the majority. In terms of simply the politics of kind of trying to convince uh, the legislature to make the change which would be necessary, I think we'd probably be better off calling it instant runoff, which is another name used for it, as opposed to ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. Um, Bernard, you're – go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, there's not much more to say than what um, Professor Bullock just mentioned about the the history a little bit and, you know, the, the kind of way we think about it now. And um, ways that the runoff could be reformed. There's an article that just went up a couple of days ago on um, PBS. A nice deep dive into the history of Georgia's runoff elections, the origins, and you know we know that it was these runoffs in Georgia in particular were implemented with discriminatory intent. 
the idea was to make sure not that black voters couldn't vote, but that when they voted, their vote wouldn't matter. And I think that's important to keep in mind here, um, despite what we saw in January 2021. And what we might see at the end of the day in the election season uh, tomorrow, um, you know, even if Democrats win there, black preferred candidates win there, that doesn't absolve the runoff system of that history. But um, I, I think, again, the, the point about participation is what's really interesting and kind of links to the discussion we were having before, which is that, you know, if we feel that democracy is made better when more people with preferences, with opinions, make their voices heard, then, you know, we have to look and say, what are we doing to make it as easy as possible in order to vote, to make sure as many people can take part as want to? And two, three-hour lines are probably not part of that equation. Um, let's just dig into that just a little bit more before we move on. The The runoff system was put into place, and I, I get this from an article in Time magazine in which you're quoted, Bernard. Denmark Groover, who was one of the most powerful members of the state legislature, the state house uh, back in the day, uh, he was the one who proposed uh, runoffs because in 1958 he had lost an election and he blamed it on what he called Negro block voters who stopped him from being able uh, to win that election. And then uh, that article quotes Groover as saying, according to uh, a, a conversation I guess he had with something in the, a study by the National Park Service, Groover said, quote, if you want to establish if I was racially prejudiced, I was. If you want to establish that some of my politically political activity was racially motivated, it was. And, and again, Patricia, without dwelling on this too much longer, the runoff initially was a, an effort to uh, keep black candidates from winning their races. Yes, um, particularly here in Georgia. Other states have had statewide runoff elections, but they've also um, eliminated those statewide runoff elections in many cases. Um, I agree with Dr. Bullock. There's something nice about a majority candidate because that at least tells you that uh, this person is going to have not a huge mandate, but at least the agreement among um, a majority of voters that this is somebody who they can get behind and support. And it's largely reflective of the kinds of policies that they'll be moving forward. When you get into a large field, um, even a field of three, you can really get down to somebody uh, lower in the 40 percent uh, range in certain circumstances. And then you see that person doesn't have the kind of mandate that they think that they do. Um, I think in terms of ranked choice voting, one concern I have about that is that it takes so long, or it has taken so long in some cases, mm. to get those results back. And that seems to leave doubt in the minds of some voters how that all worked in the first place. It seems to be very confusing for voters to navigate, to cast their ballots. And then why does it take so long to receive kind of an answer on that? New York City and Alaska are two examples of that. Um, but I, there just has to be a better way than what we're doing now. And we certainly don't want to simply be compounding the prejudices um, that uh, came before. And, you know, if you're fixing a fundamentally racist system, that's not a fix. You need to really yeah. go deeper. OK, um, thank you for that. Um, let's talk finally about the Democratic National Committee. Andra, uh, the DNC is moving toward shaking up its primary season entirely. They want to eliminate the Iowa caucus as the starting point for presidential primary voting. They want to pull New Hampshire out of the mix as the first uh, state to hold a primary election. They want to start in South Carolina. 
they want to redo uh, the schedule so that Georgia would be in early March. And, uh, and, and there, the suggestion is that it's time for the Democrats to go to states that have much more diverse voting populations because it will, in fact, put forward candidates who are supported by the diversity of our of our country. Yeah, so I mean, there are lots of motivations and there are pros and cons uh, to, to, to each of these. So some people see that Joe Biden is front-loading uh, the uh, places where he did well um, and then back-loading the places where he didn't do as well. And they're seeing that kind of as a, a, a the privilege that he's taking as leader, leader of the party to try to set up a very favorable primary environment for him in case he, he faces a challenge. But there is this larger issue. So in 2020, um, the Iowa Democratic Party uh, botched the vote get, uh, counting um, system, so it took a week to count um, the Iowa caucus votes when it shouldn't have. Um, and there is the longstanding argument that Iowa and New Hampshire are not demographically representative of the rest of the United States. And particularly when you think that blacks make up a little more than a quarter of the Democratic uh, Party vote, the idea that blacks really don't have a say in a primary until South Carolina um, is something that's really problematic, and this solution certainly does address that. It keeps Nevada in a really um, in, in, important place so that we talk about the strength of the Latino vote in the Democratic Party. Um, but there are pros and cons, and I think you know one of the cons that kind of comes out of this new proposal is the idea that by including larger states like Georgia and Michigan amongst the early voting states, that for um, insurgent candidates, they may not actually have enough time or money to be able to post a strong victory to be able to move on to other contests later. Yeah, that's right. When you've got me- when you've got states with big media markets that are expensive to advertise in. But Chuck, one of the things that's interesting, Georgia Democrats are excited, of course, about getting a more prominent position. But it, it needs we need to remember, to the best of my knowledge, the General Assembly has to vote. Uh, to move uh, the primary schedule. Uh, and uh, this question as to whether the Republicans that dominate the General Assembly want to give Democrats that prominence because the Republican National Committee doesn't plan to change its schedule. That's exactly right. It's up to the legislature. And we saw that was done, manipulated back in 1992 to help Bill Clinton when Georgia did move very much forward. So, yeah, it would it would give Georgia a very prominent position. It would also economically be good to the state because of the amount of money that would be spent here by those early candidates. So maybe that economic issue will work with Republicans who might otherwise see it as being a partisan advantage to Democrats. All right, one last quick note on this, Patricia, is that there are those who believe, Democrats who believe, don't put South Carolina first. Yes, Biden knows South Carolina a lot. But given that it's not a swing state, the Democrats ought to be looking at swing states first, not a state that's so deeply Republican. Yes, it's just a much smaller pool of uh, Democratic voters because South Carolina is just a fundamentally Republican state. Do you want to give that much power to a state um, that is fundamentally uh, red? Um, Jamie Harrison is from South Carolina, head of the DNC. Um, Mignon Clyburn mm-hmm. uh, has a huge voice in this. She's the daughter of Jim Clyburn. Uh, Joe Biden, I think we know where this is going and why. Um, I think ultimately <laughs> it's good for Georgia in the end. Well, we will watch how that unfolds. We're out of time. And this is a show, if I could only have the next hour and could actually hold on to all of you, I would love to do it. I've really enjoyed the conversation uh, with you, Chuck Bullock, 
you, Andre Gillespie, Bernard Fraga, Patricia Murphy. Enjoy your time up there with Herschel Walker in the North Georgia Mountains. Thank you all for being here for today's show. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow on Election Day. Hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. And if you haven't voted, show up at the polls tomorrow. Bye-bye, everybody.